following episode of Ottoman History Podcast is part of an ongoing series on the history of gender in the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to learn more about that series, as well as many other series available for streaming or download through iTunes, HipCast, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I am Oscar Aguirre Mandujano. Today our guest is Dr. Selim Kuru, a professor of Ottoman and Turkish studies at University of Washington in Seattle. And our topic is both the terms Mahbub Paresti and Gulam Parigi, which could be translated as boy love or boy worship. And I want to thank you, Dr. Kuru, for coming on the podcast and ask you to explain what you mean by those terms. Mahbub and Gulam Paregi are generally evaluated as synonymous uh, in modern scholarship, uh, referring to some erotic or sexual interest in young boys that manifested itself in Ghazal, first of all, the basic form of uh, Ottoman poetry. I think these terms were more antonymous in a sense, uh, since one implies sexual relationships with uh, boys, that is Gulam Paregi, and the other uh, implies more of a platonic love, ideal of love uh, that has been attested throughout the history of uh, Islamic uh, civilizations or Islamic cultures uh, from early on. It runs parallel with the development of Sufism, and there are even traditions of the Prophet where uh, he says, I saw God in the form of a beautiful boy. This is a starting point for many scholars, uh, especially Iranian scholars, Hamadani and Karmani, etc., from different centuries. Following the idea of boy loves and boy worship, the presence of male beloveds has been, like in literature, usually avoided or even translated as feminine, where uh, in the original is obviously a male being described. Regarding your research on uh, the gender of Sheikh Rengis, who is this, which is describing male beloveds and cannot be like ignored, I would like you to a little bit develop the idea of how uh, this presence of male beautiful figures play in literature. What, what is their place and how it can be studied in the case of Sheikh Rengis in particular? Male beauty and feminine descriptions of it kind of uh, is one of the uh, most confusing aspects of this boy worship, especially because it is correct that uh, whenever uh, we read a gazelle, we can think of a woman, especially in Persian and Turkish, which lack gender, but with Arabic poetry and certain employment of Arabic verbal nouns like mahbub, mahbube, uh, we like these distinctions, the way these distinctions, gender is kept separate in the loan words, both in Persian and Turkish poetry, tells us that the gender of the beloved is really male when someone sings a gazelle. There can be exceptions, but when you scan through like tens of thousands of gazelles, we see all these clues that point to a male, young male beloved. My argument is that the male form was the ideal form because God was Huwe. A male gender was assigned 
to God. Uh, and then why a young male? Uh, there are many reasons for it. Youth, first of all, should be considered as a concept how it developed in the uh, Islamic cultures with reference to Quran and of course many other influences on the development of this culture but uh, my argument is that a male young male beloved is the is unsullied by sexual desire social relationships and the creation like God created us in his own reflection but this world is cor- a corrupting world with corrupting time so until reaching puberty a boy is the ideal form not a girl necessarily but a girl even looks like a boy until reaching puberty so we can think about this without finding really good data that describe it as such uh, but this is my thinking my way of thinking that's actually a really interesting and important theme to deal with since you brought up the issue of Arabic, of course, a gendered language, pop songs today in Arabic use the male form often. They address a male, Habibi. or it's, it's, it's clearly not a male in the modern context. In the modern context, we translate it as a female because of the cultural context. But it'll be interesting to look how this transformation has taken place. And I think we'll get to that a bit later. So I want to ask you about this genre you've worked with, the Shahrangiz genre. A genre, I guess, of literature about talking about different cities and places as reflected in their boys. Right? Why don't you tell us a little about this genre, this genre and how its role in Ottoman literature and then how you conceptualize it. In, now, in earlier Arabic uh, poetry, like in the history of Arabic poetry, we have these descriptions of especially apparentices of craftsmen in the form of kut'as, like four lines, uh, brief descriptions of those boys referring to their beauty with wordplay about their profession, etc. And then in Persian literature, uh, we have certain references in Saadis and Hafiz's poetry to such craftsmen with the mention of the cities they have been working. So it was more like about a different genre of poetry or a topic in poetry where boys are described in relation to their crafts and where they worked their craft. like So this was a competitive spirit about which city is more beautiful, more has the more beautiful boys. So it was a reference to the marketplace and the livelihood of the marketplace. But these were happening in many different genres in Arabic and Persian poetry. What happened in Ottoman literature in early 16th century, like, let's say, as 60 years after the conquest of Istanbul, we see uh, one text upon the visit of uh, Bayezid II to Edirne, uh, one poet called, interestingly, Messihi of Christ, etc., most probably a Dev Shirme origin palace boy turned brokrat because we know that he was working in the chancellery. Uh, so he writes this uh, lengthy Mesnevi style, uh, each couplet rhyming in itself, uh, longish, like uh, some hundred, more than hundred couplets uh, poem, and he ends his poem interestingly with a challenge for other poets. He says, Messi was able to do this much. If you're better, come on, tell it yourself. And as a 19th century English scholar uh, Gibb explained or analyzed this, it is really made up of three parts, this poem. One introduction part, 
and then a catalog part and the conclusion. And in the intro- introduction part generally is not studied well, but people focused on the uh, catalog part where f- 41 boys, if I am not mistaken, are described in two couplets, uh, brief descriptions of either the with reference to the name of the beautiful boy or the craft of him, but they reflect more wordplay than the physical description of the boy. But we have the names of the boys listed. My interest was more on the introductory part because it starts with some sort of a what we call munajat, a pleading to God for something and like for the forgiveness of sins. This is a common feature of Mesnevi style texts from romances to other genres in other topics. But uh, Messi makes it uh, the real introduction part, skipping Tevhid and not, so there is no testimony to the oneness of God and uh, prophethood of Muhammad. But he en- enters to the poem with an acceptance of his sins. He says, like, I mean, I don't anymore look into the mihrab, but I am looking at the eyebrow of the beloved. This is my mihrab, oh God, like I am so low, so base, etc., and I think this introductory part should be evaluated in two separate sections. After this munajat comes a part where he makes three, like he works on three intriguing images. One is Joseph comes out from the pit, and uh, this is a section about night and day and the transformation, like revolutions of night and day. And Joseph, of course, Yusuf. Uh, symbolizes the sun and his being saved from the pit announces the rise of the sun and the pit is the darkness where poet is struggling with this worldly love or even if it is platonic he is stuck on that stage of stage of representation than the real thing which is you know the beautiful boy is a representation of the divine beauty the most beautiful thing because human beings are they are the most beautiful of the creation and as I explained before the boy is the sign and the second image which I couldn't kind of resolve yet but it is repeated in all the texts named Shehrengis, most of them but it is boys swimming in a in the Edirnes river in black uh, loincloths and their white bud- bodies represent the day and their loincloths represent uh, and he uses the re- uh, word hijab there uh, the night so night becomes this cover on things I don't know shameful or something and the, when the sun breaks all those are clarified or clear this is my vague reading for the time being I, wa- I need to work on this more I actually I wanted to use uh, the division you are mentioning of the text, this structure that is divided between an introduction that seems to relate to a more religious part, uh, this description of Jesus' story uh, from the Quran and the Bible, and this catalog, which seems like a more seems to be talking more about actualities. So I would I would like you to, uh, in order to relate it to like larger literary tradition of the Ottoman Empire, how this structure uh, speaks to these two major themes in Ottoman Turkish literature, which is erotic gaze and religious yearning. Yeah, there is this line which comes just before the uh, before this series of images starts described. So the poet explains how low and base he is, how he can't he can't follow the real path of religion, uh, and he says. 
Ne katre ki akar bu çeşmi terden, meni dürkim gelür hazzı nazardan. These drops that run from my wet or fresh eyes are semen from the pleasure of sight. So what we see here is tears uh, symbolizing semen and uh, instead of copulation there is this pleasure drawn from just looking and we need to realize here nazar is not an easy simple thing in this culture it is the origin of creation like so the wetness like this fresh uh, tears as semen which is a productive juice <laughs> bodily juice so this replacement also uh, kind of it is a very striking couplet i really want messi he had composed it and it is really in the place in, in a very telling place in the text but i am curious if it is censored in many copies or if it is added by a, another author but even then it is really a telling beautiful kind of unsettling uh line so uh, i came to this point uh, with respect to your question about uh, the structuring of the text i guess and the gaze story and when it comes to gaze we are really we don't have a really good analysis of it for in pre-modern you know cultures in general there are works for uh, the what for christian cultures and you know all the mystical symbolisms etc are there but with the islamic spheres we have really dispersed studies of it and uh, i think this is one point since it is related with creation loving and it is a central thing like the eyes in this literature like ottoman literature and persian and arabic uh, it needs more investigation That actually leads to my next question I wanted to ask. Clearly, these texts have multiple purposes at the same time. Do we read these as sexual, primarily sexual passages, or what are the different layers here, and how should we treat these texts? This is a very good question, because initially I was very excited as a student to learn about Shehrengiz as sexually explicit texts, because they are kind of introduced as erotic texts in catalogs of manuscripts prepared in the Western uh cult like in english french etc and then in turkish there uh kind of this aspect of them are not mentioned much even though there is a lot of work on these texts because they were introduced first in turkish uh, scholarship as local products of ottoman culture so they were almost like this turkishness of this islamic literature a proof of that in the early republican era but then i when i read those catalog parts or the introduction part there was nothing related to sexuality they were in fact the catalog parts is mere wordplay like about showing the prowess of the poet so they are not sexually explicit texts and even though there are allusions to some sexual desire there uh even Joseph's story can be like the pet, Joseph, rise, etc. All these vocabulary may conjure up some sexual feeling for someone really desperate. But, I mean, it it was a disappointment for me initially. And then uh, some scholars in Persian literature uh, kind of bring these texts along with Sheikh Rashub and treat them as a 
you know, uh, a historical discourse on cities and beloveds and their sexual and sense of they describe sexual desires. I think reading into the text rather than trying to understand what the text tells you, because you mentioned uh, the function uh, function of this text. First of all, there is really there are clues that these texts, the boys mentioned in the texts, were at least told. Uh, the couplets that were told about them by the poet and uh, their reactions. We have instances in biographical dictionaries about some incidents upon the writing and we don't know how they were circulated, in what form, because they're not huge huge texts. They're generally parts of a poet's uh, poetry collection or we come across them in Mejmoa's miscellaneous a lot of times. So the place, like why they were composed, first of all, most probably Messihis one, and the second one, Zati's, on Edirne again, were presented to Sultan Bezat, uh the second, uh, because he is mentioned there, even though he wasn't eulogized at length. Uh, and it was on the occasion of his visiting Edirne Messihi claims he writes this text and he says like by the coming of the sultan just like joseph's getting out of the pit the sun uh, rises over edirne and shines these beauties so we cannot see them and this text he says is a shehring is not the beauties so this text will put the city into turmoil because shehringis means uh, engis is almost like fitna uh, rising you know gib um, uh, translates them as city thrillers so like it may be a good st- translation to follow just out of respect but i mean it is like it this text will create fitna kind of a thing he says clearly like not the beauties but his description of them because they are his divine desire that these boys lead but not leave him free after that stage he's stuck there he can't reach god if he reaches the god then he won't sing poetry of course like but this is the dilemma of the poet gazelle i understand gazelle even that dilemma like i you love these beauties because they are reflections of god but they don't let you go to god anymore because you are stuck in that valley of love kind of a thing actually one of the things you're saying here points to some of the larger issues of the way that past scholars, that maybe we can call them Orientalists, have read these texts, which is searching for what they're looking for rather than seeking to fully understand the function of the text and its place in the context within which it was produced. Which is actually a very interesting uh, remark because these texts seem to go beyond the symbolic love, uh, which is the norm of the literary production of the Ottoman Empire, and start to actually addressing uh, actual boys uh, that exist in the city. And uh, I kind of want to ask you uh, a little bit about this, uh, the role of, of this genre, uh, like the function of this genre, the social function it has among contemporaries that were answering and were being described, and also how this trigger uh, another literary answers, like this uh, other couplets to mock the author. I don't know if you could develop on that. The thing is, I like some uh, some scholars evaluated these as a part of hijab literature, like uh, more um, comic genre, a comic genre. Uh, and I think the comedy arises by this stuck 
up position of the poet uh, so that all these witticisms, they may not be funny when you look into them because these are the wailings of the poet as well. But relating or naming the real people in the city has been by late 15th century. This is according to my Persian scholars, like friend, my friends were Persian liter- literature scholars. Uh, there appears in late 15th century a kind of gazelle that uses a boy's name as its repeating rhyming element. So each couplet ends with the boy's name. And this doesn't happen before, like, the conquest of Istanbul, but after that. Like, bo- using boy's name in a gazelle is very common, but this repeti- repetitive interest. And so we have, for example, until uh, 1550s, 1580s, all these collection of poetry with, with these names used as rhyming elements, and most probably they were replies to the previous poems by... But this shows an interest in using those names and some of them are uh, attested like uh, some uh, biographical dictionary writers tells us who those boys like he said for example mentioning a poet he says like oh oh, he wrote a gazelle for Memi and we have that gazelle Memi is a abbreviated form of Mehmet and used for a younger boy I think there is a local development at that point in late 15th century is an innovation in a literary genre, in, in a gazelle, and it must have had some social uh, relevance. Like Mami was there outside, this poet was uh, befriending him, so there were looser rules on the ulema and the bureaucrats and their relationship to the marketplace, because we know that those get more stricter, as Gülrunic, Polu, etc., uh, Cornell Flesher described how the palace growingly closes into itself, and Ulema became more susceptible for criticism, etc., but they disappear gradually, uh, such gazelles, and Shehrengis becomes more looser, more generic at form than Messihi has formulated growingly. So my research is now like to identify which Sheh- how Shehrengis started, how, how the replies were uh, mediated by poets to Messihi's poem, and then how it spread around, and then how it collapsed, kind of a genre, and why. One of the things you, you've done with this work, approaching from a literary perspective, is go deeper into, as we've been saying, the function of the text and, and trying to figure out what purpose these really served and, and what the meaning was in the historical context. This is interesting because this is something that historians uh, don't always do when they use literature as a historical source. Uh, so my larger question in thinking about certain transformations that you are mentioning are taking place. My larger question is, how does this fit in with our broader um, narrative and the understanding of maybe transformation of idealization of male or female beauty, um, of course the issues of sexuality and the fairly recent term of homosexuality that arises from this discussion. How does, how does studies of texts like these fit into the larger scholarship that we have? Now, there is, since the beginning of the 21st century, there was a renewed interest in sexuality and gender in uh, the Ottoman Empire and larger Islamic cultures, along with the European 
sexualities. This is an uh, impact of Foucault's history of sexuality to some degree and testing the arguments which are in that work. And uh, as a result of this and the second wave feminism, on the other hand, we see many works appear on gender and sexuality in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and those works employed different kinds of texts. For example, when you look at Leslie Pierce's very important uh, work on gender and women's position in society in the Ottoman Empire, she uh, employs mostly uh, archival material, mostly sigils, uh, the judges' documents, as well as kanunnames, which are even more different than kadı sigils. And uh, she expands her data as she goes, which is one scholar I always follow. <laughs> What she does is important to me. But she looks at a woman's position and from a kind of a feminist perspective, I will call. I'm not saying her work is part of feminist uh, work. Uh, but uh, then the other one, mostly by male scholars for some reason, is focusing on Ottoman Empire and uh, male-to-male sexuality. In fact, Rojevi's book goes beyond that, and he discovers more categorically his studies in producing desire, uh, different genres of texts he discusses. But in each chapter, he brings together, again, very different kinds of texts, but he looks at more social groups than not, and it's not... I think well mediated, but as a as a work, it's a ground working, uh, ground breaking study for me as well. A very inspiring study. Um, I think, uh, for example, Shehrengiz is a I in my uh, imagination of early 16th century Ottoman literature. Uh, I am a bit working, I think, against the idea that these texts never changed. Even Kadusijas, I believe, changed through history. And it's impossible that they wouldn't change because they are produced. We need a linguistic study of those texts, historical linguistics I'm talking about. But when it comes to literature, it has to change. It has to be attractive. It has to attract attention, renew attention. Otherwise, it would be dull. You know. So I think we need to, first of all, think in decades when we study Ottoman literature or history in decades instead of centuries. And uh, that is very important, and decade even is a a priori uh, category when you think about it. And then look at how texts are related to each other, because it's just like our times, like one text comes out in scholarship and the reply to it comes after that, etc. And Ottomans produced literature like that as well. So Gazelle changed tremendously as it was changing in Iran when there were international literary interests so they were reading Persian gazelles, Persians were or were not reading Ottoman gazelles like, but they were more complicated impossible to you know, capture kind of a, a system a network of relationships going around literature as well as history writing and imagining themselves etc. So I think The most important thing now is after Walter Andrews and Mehmet Kalpaklı's study, Drozhevi's study, uh, uh, El Hep's uh, study, uh, we, and Pierce's studies, which are more focused than these three books, in fact, both geographically and historically, we need to get 
back to the texts for better analyses. But there are developments now in University of Chicago, at the University of uh, Washington in Seattle, and such places. (laughs) There is some interest in literature, and new dissertations are promising. But what I am thinking is the direction is going towards historicizing literature instead of uh, bringing literature into the perspective and doing sound literary analyses so that historians may benefit, and historians are generally not that interested still in literary devices that Ottoman uh, ulema and bureaucrats employed to make their texts. So when people read Ali, they use it as a mine of sources without thinking how Ali structured his writing, what did a composition meant, what is a history exactly uh, composed of, like there are Jean Schmidt's work on Ali is, for example, very important, but I think largely neglected his book and analysis of Künhül Ahbar, for example. It's an amazing resource for a historian, but or Menage's study of early Tevari, like they are all, in fact, literary analysis to some degree, or textual analysis, let's say. Following this question, I would would like to ask um, precisely the approach of historian is always to look at, uh, well, not always, but is generally to look the literary text as a mine of historical information. And in that sense, this kind of literature has been used to figure out sexuality. So I wanted to ask you, like, in your opinion, to what extent the very terms of homosexuality, sexuality of gender, uh, produces a kind of uh, harmful or hurtful bias to, to understand the internal logic or the logic itself of this literary production uh, by using it as uh, just a mine of information about sexual attitudes in the Ottoman Empire? That's a very important and a basic question in a sense, not easy to uh, reply directly, but it can be a drive to approach these texts. I could have like been interested if I were... like if I had my mind now, <laughs> the mind I have now after all this learning process, I would have been more interested in, let's say, Tevhid sections and how they change. It is about attesting the unity of God, but we don't read such texts anymore as scholars. But those poets in their times thought that they are very important. So each one of them composed several Tevhids or knots about the prophet and the God. So who was taking what kind of pleasure from them? I think, like... In that sense, what I'm saying is the logic of these texts are not understood only through sexuality or sexu- uh, another statement that may come out from my argument is that sexuality is just one topic in this literature and points to the transformations of it. But, uh, for example, when we come to 19th century, if you allow me to, I am not an expert there, but I mean, Uh, the development of Western novel, for example, uh, it happens while certain poets were still writing about Mahbub Lauf, Mahbub Peresti, and Muallim Naji, a very important figure in 19th century Ottoman letters, uh, has been blamed for being Mahbub Perest. I mentioned this in an article that came out in Turkish in Kogito last year, uh, how these uh, old pre-modern literary concept of Mahbub 
Peresti, etc., were employed in the late 19th century, and how novel genre totally neglected boy love except for a few instances where it is generally a relief to realize that the beloved is not a boy. This is like Vatanyaut's Listre and Durdani Hanum of Ahmed Mithat Efendi has these gender confusion issue. But uh, those people who were writing those novels were aware of Mahmoud Peresti because it was going on as Ibn Lemin Mahmoud Kemal's uh, biographical dictionaries reflect very aptly. And uh, for example, what I'm trying to say that sexuality is a very good uh, topic to trace, to understand literary transformation, but literary text is not that good as resource to understand sexuality as it is experienced in society because it is more about a traditional literary understanding just like our understanding of novel it constantly delimits us with its own devices but we don't think like that we think that novel is changing every day but in fact if we look at novels of 19th and 20th century let's say 200 years later we will see them as lumps we already perceive 19th century novel as adultery novel or such, for example, and this should be a clue how we are doing injustice to earlier literary texts and the pleasures drawn from them by people who are reading them. They are not about their social life. We've, we've mentioned these historical studies that have used literature as a data mine, basically, for information about sexuality, and you're saying that, in fact, it's a distortion of maybe the purpose of the text and maybe not... Um, a good way of getting at the actual lived experience of sexuality. So I want to ask about the the largest narrative we have in terms of the history of sexuality, at least in the Middle East, but probably in the world, which is uh, most simply put that in the 19th century, with an encounter with Europe, we could say, or with a, uh, the development of a new bourgeois class and, and all these things tied to what is increasingly less so-called modernization, the simple narrative is that different attitudes towards male relationships emerged. Namely, that previously uh, the boundaries between the sexual and the homosocial were less clear and they became more rigid during this period. Through your reading of these texts, how can we maybe interrogate this narrative or break it apart a little? Or is this in fact a narrative that holds up? What do you think about that? Yes, this is a difficult if not unfair question, <laughs> because we have still like uh, Foucault's evaluation of Victorian sexuality, uh, which is the most quoted Foucault passage, like it is the first few pages of the first volume of a three-volume text. Unfortunately, it keeps appearing in the Middle Eastern studies. I don't know about the rest of the world, but uh, so there's not a really facing Foucault moment uh, but there's taking Foucault behind and uh, running for the fight kind of a thing to prove it instead of testing it. So I think there are three levels. First of all, there's experience, which is a very major problematic issue in his, any historical research. You know, I, I think Ottoman studies are a bit... Uh, avoiding this question of what is experience and how uh, what is experienced can we reconstruct it really or are we talking about ourselves still mm-hmm. second thing I think is which is related relations like oral communications our discussions among our, uh, each other as well as Ottomans writing about their conversations and third is the literary art- art- artifact I put 
in the second archival documents and all these things which are more reliable, in quote unquote, more reliable for historians. But in fact, they are communications in writing, you know, a sigil, a law code, a farman, everything they speak to the other kind of, to another person. But literary art- artifact is even intriguing in that sense because it speaks to the other. Shehrengis was written so that those boys would hear their descriptions by a poet and show favor to him or the poet will be more popular in the city but the poet is a part of the palace so there was already an inherent uh, strain on such literature because they are really marginal they are not uh, intended for a pattern necessarily so how, we don't still know how to deal with such texts because we think patronage is the norm even in architecture we can come up with a similar example like urban um, vernacular architecture architecture in Ottoman Empire is not accounted for yet. There are really brilliant studies in the form of articles, but we still look at patterned edifices. This is similar in literature. So what I am trying to say, I guess, is we need to just make sure our limitations first, and this is not done yet. We don't have a primer even, a good, decent primer of what kind of genres are there when writing, which is our major resource, except for archaeology, etc. Writing comes into being, what is the Kadir sigil, how it was, it, it, what kind of manifestations uh, it had. Like, literary, literary field is a bit more lucky in that, because we sorted, sifted, and continue sorting and sifting genres, etc. But I think those genres are intrinsically related to the documentary sources because most of the producers of those sources were in the realm of literature as well. These were two languages that feed each other. So we have many witticisms, etc., which are more local and tells us about the lifestyles than, you know, ideal romances and masterpieces which seem more obscure to our modern eye. Maybe they are also as telling, but we don't know ways and technologies and methodologies to uh, discover the texts in depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we go for Mahbub Peresti as soon as we see it. Oh, there's a boy law mm-hmm. going on here. and But we don't think why they use Perest, which means to worship. So you don't fuck a god, I think. Like Perest does not involve sexual copulation, right? right. Uh, but it is worshipping, so he's not doing something bad. But Gulam Paregi, it is like Paregi is an interesting term, I'm thinking still, and it is like to open. rip open <laughs> up kind of a thing, a Gulam, a slave kind of a thing. So, And it is not that common in Iran, Persian literature, for example, as a term. But, by, but Ottoman treated them separately. And uh, we need to go back look at Selçuk-i times, Anatolia, because the sources are mostly coming from there. I'm not saying like there's no influence from Iranian Plato or something like that, but there are all these discussions of Mahbub Peresti in the time of Celaleddin Rumi, Mevlana Celaleddin Rumi, there are uh, discussions of it before that in Ibn Arabi, Mevlana's rejection of Ibn Arabi, Evahuddin Karmani's Menakabs, which are recently taken up in an article in Journal of Sufism, the new journal. 
uh, ingeniously. It is a very good article. But these are coming up, but the links are missing, like how Messi he puts into work through literature in a marketplace, both the device of high literary medium and uh, a Sufi tendency of a Sufi practice of contemplation, boys, beauties, and then his position as a bureaucrat in town and created a short text which is still being discussed and discussed uh, like mentioned throughout centuries it is not forgotten but the genre is not anymore or it was taking other shapes so i hope this answers your question because but in short like i think we need to think what is written uh in relation with what is told i made this simplistic category of documents are what is told and Literary, what is literary is what is written or composed. So composition, we need to think about what one does when he composes something. It is like applying a university, we compose a text. We have all the clues how to do it to be successful. So we rewrite our history according to some expectation. So we need to think about literature, not only Ottoman literature, but modern literature as well. Something like that, some expectation is there in our minds so we are doing it otherwise we won't do it kind of a thing i think i think a lot of this discussion for our listeners who are students of history uh is really interesting because hearing you talk about the the way you talk about the text from a literary perspective just brings to mind so many questions about why didn't i interrogate this aspect of a text that i'm using as a historical document from evlia chelebi to the most uh, obscure sources that we have or even as you said Kadi sigils and even Tahriya Deftar, why not? You, it, it raises questions, and I think it really enriches the way historians use their sources. Well, Dr. Kuro, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, Oscar, for coming on and, and joining us for the co-host. Uh, thanks to you. For those who are interested in finding out more about the topic, we're going to post a select bibliography on the website where you can get some more information about some of the different issues we've touched on today. Uh, that's where all you, you can also leave your comments and questions for either the podcast or for the guests. Um, that's all for this installment of the Adam and History Podcast. Until next time, take care. Oh, cheers. <laughs> 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 <laughs>